such good news for us that God's word declares to us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. It's such an encouragement to our souls. And we also have his word to us in other places in lots of ways. And First Peter is one of those ways. And we're working through our uh, sermon series, just preaching through the book of First Peter. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or in the... Um, the bulletin on page 7, Pew, Pew Bible, you'll find our passage on page 1015, however you want to follow along in God's Word. And, you know, Christianity is not just something to believe in, though we certainly do believe in much, but it's a way to live out our entire lives. It gives us a perspective. It provides us a pattern. And it shows us how we're united to Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at First Peter, one of my favorite passages uh, particularly at the end of chapter 2, but we're going to start in verse 18 of chapter 2 this morning and go through the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. Uh, so if you would follow along, and then you'll see there on page 7 at the end, we'll respond with our thanks to the Lord for His Word. So First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your provision of it. To remind us that we won't be left or forsaken so that we can sing those things and pray those things. And Father, we thank you that you point us again and again to your word, both in promises and in promises fulfilled. And we see that in this passage. Lord, you are the God who fulfills your promises to your people. And all of those promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, let us look to him today as you have provided in your gracious word to us. Lord, we thank you and we pray that you would be with us this morning. We also pray for those who aren't with us. We ask that you would be with them where they are. You would minister to them in their souls. And, Lord, bring them back to us at the right time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. While he was still speaking... There came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. 
But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then those who were around him saw what would follow, and they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day by day, day after day in this temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And after that, we know that Jesus was arrested and he would be tried and crucified. I like how the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all leave unnamed. They tell the story, but they leave unnamed the impetuous disciple who took up his sword. That disciple who did not wait for an answer to the question, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? He didn't wait for an answer. Instead, he took aim. Now, I don't think he was trying to give that servant a little haircut. Probably not uh, the most noted swordsman. I like how the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, leave him unnamed. But John says, well, let me tell you, that was Peter. And everybody's going, of course it was. (laughs) Just so we knew all along. The same Peter who would boldly proclaim that he would die for Jesus, but then deny him three times. The same Peter who previously took Jesus aside to rebuke him for saying that he had to suffer and die. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That's bold. That is bold also maybe a little foolish and yet how frequently do we look at the lord and say i've got a better plan i've got a better way well jesus took peter aside if you will he turned to him matthew 16 says and he responded and said get behind me satan you are a hindrance to me For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, that's us, isn't it? Our setting our sights on the things of man, not the things of God. That's our mindset. And this passage that we come to in 1 Peter is reorienting our sight. And helping us to set our minds on the things of God, not on the things of God of man i said a couple weeks ago that our identity as a church as a people god is an identity that we receive from god not one that we achieve on our own and that's good news because apart from god's gracious work we don't have an identity rooted in who he is it's rooted in our rebellion in our selfishness and our sense of enthroning ourselves above anyone or god himself but how can this be how can we receive this identity 
How does it come about? Well, the short answer is the cross of Christ. We live because he died. We have an identity because of his suffering. And the things of God are revealed through the sacrifice of Christ. This is what we follow and how we are shaped. And so here's my theme this morning. The follower of Christ is called to a cruciform life. That is, that word cruciform means we are shaped by the cross. And here's what I mean by that. And we're going to look at these three points in this passage. Enduring sorrows, emulating the shepherd, and entrusting ourselves to the shepherd. So I should say emulating the Savior and entrusting ourselves to the shepherd. So let's start with enduring sorrows. We begin in verse 18. And have you seen those signs? I don't know if any of you have them in your house but they're printed usually wood and painted on them. And they're a, a list of things. And they say something like, in this house, we are thankful. We laugh a lot. We have fun. We give second chances. We are blessed. We give hugs. We are real. You've seen that. You know what I'm talking about? The list, some of them have something like, we do loud. You know, that might fit for some of your homes and we do family we do love those are all wonderful ideas and concepts we might call those a household code it's an ideal for that family to follow it's a way of identifying who those people are well in the new testament we have similar ideas household code how those who are followers of christ will be shaped by the cross and in a sense, the scripture is putting it out there on a sign and saying, this is how we are going to live within our home, within the culture in which we find ourselves. It was a common concept in this uh, time as well, not just in scripture, but uh, generally so. And so Peter and Paul borrow from those concepts and apply it to the Christian home. Of course, we started a few weeks ago and we heard Jacob pray the larger concept of we are all under authority and we all have to submit uh, to others. And now we come to the beginnings of specific roles. Peter starts with servants. Next week, I'm excited to preach about husbands and wives. That's always fun, isn't it? So these household co codes usually operated, they talk about those different roles that existed within the household. So servants and masters, oftentimes husbands and wives and children. Here in Peter, we start with servants. Now that may seem strange to you, but this was very common at this time. Now I have to state very clearly, there's a difference between the chattel slavery that we're used to hearing about within American history and the slavery that existed during this time. Now that's not an excuse. We also recognize that slavery still exists in other parts of the world. But Peter is writing at a time, and I'm quoting someone now, slavery was wide, a widespread and commonly accepted feature of the social fabric and economic system of the Roman world. So it was estimated that over 85% of the population of Rome and Italy were slaves in the first century. 
And in the entire uh, Roman Empire, it's estimated that about half of the population were slaves. Slaves could accumulate wealth. They could buy their freedom. They could start their own businesses. They were not just used for hard labor or menial tasks, although that did exist. But they could be tutors or teachers. They could be architects. They could be doctors. Uh, That often was the case. Some would intentionally put themselves into slavery as a way of bettering their lives. And yet, let me state clearly, it was not a great institution because you could be abused. Aristotle called slaves living tools. They could be branded or put to death or punished in some other ways. They could be abused. And let us note as well that passages like this have been abused. Uh, have been abused by Christians or those in the name of Christ to keep others under subjection. So those things do happen, and yet Peter does not condemn the institution of slavery here. Why? Well, think about Peter's influence right now. It is not great. It is minuscule in the Roman Empire. He's a nobody within a group that does not have any power or prestige or standing. So if he were to try to condemn the institution of slavery, he might just bring about harm to those who are in this position. Secondly, by addressing servants or slaves, and the word here in verse 18 is a phrase for household servants, where in verse 16 it was the more common word for a slave, a doulos in the Greek. Uh, So Peter's making a distinction to some degree, but he's elevating their standing by addressing them as brothers or sisters in Christ. And then finally, Peter's purpose here is to speak of a cruciform life for these servants. So imagine that some of them had become followers of Christ. They heard the good news of Jesus. What now? They've entered into this place of radical freedom in Christ. Freedom from their sin. Freedom from Satan. Freedom from death. But how should they live in this world? How do they live out their following of Christ? Well, they don't have power or position. But they do have the promise and presence of God. And they don't get a pass from following Christ in their lives. None of us do, regardless of our position, our standing, whether it is a lot or a little, little, we're all called to follow Christ and live out our salvation. And so our lives here are going to be shaped by Christ, and that means first the cross. Glory will come, but first the cross. The cross comes before the crown, as is often said. Glory is promised, but the way there is through the cross of Christ. And so these servants are then called to look beyond their place and to keep their focus on the Lord. And they know more than anyone what it means to be what it means to be in subject to someone else, to be subjected to mistreatment. To masters who would treat them unfairly or unjustly. 
but they are directed by Peter to continue where they are. It is not their circumstances that are to change. It's their own hearts and lives as they follow Christ. So there may be mistreatment, but now there is a purpose behind their willingness to subject. It is for the purpose of God, to honor him and to please him. Peter calls it a gracious thing or a commendable thing, as we see here in First Peter. Servants, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. It's, it's a credit to you. It's commendable. When mindful, there's the key, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When we endure sorrow and grief in a world of injustice, the Lord sees this. The cruciform life is one of endurance for the follower of Christ. And if, it, if this is true, for those who had little freedom in this world, then how much more should it be true for us who have freedom? You know, we're, we're prone to talking about our, our bosses and say, oh, that, that guy's a slave driver, right? That kind of language. Well, we recognize now that that's maybe not appropriate, but it's also just not true. But... We also recognize that sometimes there are difficulties that we have to endure. And when we suffer within those, mindful of God, the Lord sees those things. And so if it's true for these servants, it's certainly going to be true for us. Whatever we may experience, but not just enduring our sorrows, we're called to emulate our Savior and I don't always remember my sermon titles. I don't put all of my effort into this. Some pastors don't even use sermon titles. But I remember some of them. I, some of them I think are pretty clever. I like shouting Thomas instead of doubting Thomas. That was Easter a few, a few years ago. And I always think of one I titled the hardest commandment. You know the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself, right? The greatest commandment. Well, what's the hardest commandment? Love your enemy. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Luke chapter 6, for example, love your enemies. And he says, he, he goes on in that passage and says, you know, we'll love those who will love us back. There's no credit in that. That's a reciprocal relationship. Nothing wrong with that. But you don't get credit for that love because that's just you're getting something in return. You're expecting that. And that's okay. There's lots of relationships that are like that. But Jesus is saying you're going to have to love people who don't love you back, who hate you. Right? That's what an enemy is. So you have to shift your expectation you have to shift your focus and so jesus is saying our love can't just be confined to those reciprocal relationships i'm calling you to something more and that's why i called it the hardest commandment because i don't think we actually find it quite easy to follow that 
Not that we do all, all that well with the other commandments, mind you. But that one, I don't know that we even try sometimes. Well, a servant who's being addressed here, they don't have a reciprocal relationship with their master, do they? The master might even be his or her enemy. And Jesus and Peter give a hard command to those who are following Jesus in this world. So verse 20 continues, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You may have to endure that and that can be done well. But it's a just if you if you suffer because of your sin. That's justice, not endurance. That's not something that's a credit to you. But Jesus promises reward for our loving of our enemies. And these servants are promised the same. For if when you do good and suffer for for it, you endure, this is a gracious and good thing in the sight of God. The Lord sees our suffering for his sake. He sees the good we do in his name. Even if we're rejected by the world, what the cross does is it teaches us to look beyond what we can see and what we feel. But you are not being asked to go anywhere that Jesus has not already gone. You're not being asked to walk a path that he hasn't first charted. You're not to look to your own strength to accomplish this, because this would be impossible. But look at verse 21. For this, to this, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's why I said emulating the Savior, the servant who is mistreated unjustly, is identified here with the suffering servant. The suffering Savior. They have standing not on their outward calling as a slave, but the inward call of the Lord to follow Christ. And this is our calling too, to follow Jesus where he goes. And that is a calling that means you don't follow him on the basis of your feelings. You don't follow him on the basis of your circumstances. You don't follow him on the basis of your abilities, but where the Lord leads you in this world. And he shows us the path forward. He has left us an example. The call to endurance would be hollow if Jesus had not first endured on our behalf. So let me put it this way. Did Jesus love his enemies? Or did he only love those who could love him back? What does scripture say? Romans 5, 8. For God loved us first, right? Go, go to Romans 5, for example. Even while we were still enemies, he gave us his son. That is a pitiful paraphrase. What could you reciprocate towards the Son of God who is also the King of kings and Lord of lords? What do you have to offer in exchange for his love? Only your sin. We love because he first loved us. 
And thankfully, love, God loves his enemies with an active love, a one-way love. He doesn't reciprocate our hate, nor does he grant us what we actually deserve. J.C. Ryle said if he had dealt with the world as the world dealt with him, we should all have been ruined in hell forever. In 2021, there was a survey of about 1,200 people, and there was this question of men and women, by the way, what animals could you defeat if you were unarmed? So if you were in a fight, a fist fight with an animal, what could you defeat? So the highest percentage was for men was a rat at 76%. Now, I don't know what that 24% is thinking. Are they thinking the rat's going to scurry away and they can't defeat it? Or do they actually think they can't defeat a rat? I don't know. A house cat, I don't remember the percentages, but some of you would like to fight a house cat, I think. What about a king cobra? Well, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with that. So I'm just not even participating. Uh, this one surprised me. 11% of women and 17% of men th- think they can defeat a kangaroo. Have you seen the pictures where they're all jacked up? Like they've been lifting, working out? I'm sorry, I'm not in that percentage. But here's the one that really surprised me. 7% of women and 8% of men think they could defeat a lion unarmed. You know, I don't want, that's the 7 or 88% of people that I know for certain, if you're one of those, don't let me know. I know for certain that I don't want to follow them. I don't want to emulate anything about their lives. Now, I will go on a safari with them. Because I might need a head start. There are some people that are worth following in this world. But there is one that towers above them all. Especially when it comes to what it means to know the Lord and to live out our salvation. We are called to emulate the Savior. Now we can't be anyone's Savior. That's not what I'm saying. But to be willing to. To endure suffering as his follower, as his son or daughter of the living God. To emulate the son who came for us. To declare to the world that there is a greater authority and we are placing ourselves under that. That we live to please him. Because our Savior has suffered first for us. We who were at enmity with him but have now been subdued by his, not a sword, but the cross, by his love. Not by force, not by laying down the law, though he upheld it, but by laying down his life for those of us who can't keep the law. This is what we're called to emulate, to follow. And finally, we entrust ourselves to the shepherd. And I think it's important to say here that liberal, if I can put it under this category of liberal Christianity, there's a whole segment of those who would claim Christ but would stop here. They have what I would call a saviorless Christianity. Jesus is only an example, the best of all examples, and he certainly is. 
We also, on the other side, don't want to have an example-less Christianity. Christ calls us to follow him. He gives us the example. Peter says Jesus is the example that we are to live out. But let us look first and foremost and always to him as our savior. For only in that will we be able to emulate him. So true true Christianity is a call to a cruciform life. And that means we're going to need to keep our eyes fixed to the cross of Jesus. I need a savior. And I never want to be far from that. And what Peter does in the rest of this chapter, the rest of this passage, is he draws on Isaiah 53. It's the final of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And I just want to read a few verses from Isaiah 53. But he pulls from lots of different places from this chapter. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise promise in Isaiah 53 and all of the promises of the Messiah who comes as the suffering servant. He is the sinless substitute. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, the sinless substitute has come in Christ, and he patiently endured suffering for our sake. And he did so because he looked to the Father, the one who judges justly. This word that's translated as entrust, uh, continued entrusting himself could be more literally translated as he gave himself over. And that's used uh, several times in the Gospels. And it's usually not a good thing to be handed over. So there's several examples. Judas handed Jesus over to the priest out of his greed. The priest handed Jesus over to Pilate out of envy and self-righteousness. Pilate handed him over to the soldiers out of cowardice. And on the cross, Jesus handed himself over to God for vindication as he endured the mocker's taunts and anticipated his final vindication in the resurrection. And this is, I've been pulling from my professor, Dan Doriani, And he concludes that little section by saying, For disciples, Jesus is the supreme example of the man who suffered patiently because of confidence in God. He handed himself over for us. And so we look to the cross to find life in Christ and then to have our lives shaped by the cross. 
verses 24 and 25 continue, it makes it abundantly clear. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By faith, I can truly say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. And I can sing with the saints, I was once lost, but now I am found. And there is nothing that Jesus will ask me to do that he hasn't forgiven me for not doing or that he hasn't already done for me. And so I entrust my entire self. I give myself over to the Savior, knowing that I will be kept in his loving and gracious arms. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight And sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand. Of the throne of God. You know the servant is not greater. Than the master. And if that's true. Then I will trust in my master the Lord Jesus Christ, as he leads me in this life. I'll conclude with this. The Apostle John just doesn't just identify Peter by name as the impetuous disciple who wielded the sword, trying to defend the Savior who could call down legions of angels if he needed it. But it's interesting to me that he also names the servant of the high priest who lost his ear, almost lost his life if Peter hadn't been such a poor swordsman. He's more of a fisherman, right? The name of that servant is Malchus. Now, I can't prove this, I can't tell you this, but I wonder if we won't meet Malchus one day in eternity. The one who had his ear healed in that moment, who saw who Jesus was face to face. I can't prove it. The name doesn't show up anywhere in Scripture, but we know that the Jesus who restored to him his ear could restore to him his life. I have to imagine that this servant might have seen and heard things, no pun intended, maybe, a bit differently. What I do know is that Jesus does heal more than ears. He heals entire lives. We are healed by his wounds. And because I've received the greater healing than I can endure through whatever the Lord leads, it will be by daily taking up my cross, denying myself, and following Jesus who took up his cross so that I could know and be known by his everlasting love. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and how it returns us again and again to Christ, our Savior. Lord, let us never stop looking to him and following him in the way that he leads us. 
Lord, we know that this life that you call us to in this world will be a cruciform one, one shaped by the cross. But Lord, we know that that is because Christ has gone there first and he bids us to come follow him. So Lord, we do that today and we pray that you'd help us to do that in the week to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.